Good morning. As always, it is a delight to be here with you this morning. We're thankful for your presence. Our sermon this morning will come from a passage in Proverbs chapter 24. A few thoughts about the book of Proverbs. It is a book of wisdom, and it contains short statements of truth contextually. And so the Bible will say, answer a fool according to his folly. And then a verse or two later, it'll say, answer not a fool according to his folly. And so they're contextual proverbs, and they contain truth. Wisdom is discussed throughout the book. A father is disseminating wisdom to his son. It's as if he's called him near for a conversation. Tells his son about the events in the world, the people in the world, what to do, what to avoid, and how to think, and how to behave. And he talks throughout the book that way. So much in this book is about wisdom and foolishness and righteousness and unrighteousness. And he pleads to his son to listen to him, follow his advice and his wisdom and his counsel, and to ultimately be wise and live accordingly. He says within the book, don't envy the wicked. Sometimes it seems like the wicked is winning the day, and those who are righteous can constantly feel like, I'm giving up this, I'm doing that, and man, it just seems like the wicked keep going and they keep prospering. And so the counsel is don't envy the wicked, don't fret because of evildoers. He ultimately says God will judge them, and he will. And so he informs his son and encourages him, be righteous and live wisely. Ultimately, in the book, I think one of the key verses is chapter 2 and verse number 6, where the Bible says wisdom comes from God. The Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's ultimately the source of wisdom that we would all want to live by. In Proverbs chapter 24, portions of the passage we had read, our sermon this morning comes from one of these Proverbs. It's found in verse number 16 where in that section or in that verse, the writer says, For a righteous man falleth seven times, and riseth up again, but the wicked are overthrown in their calamity. The focus I want us to draw our attention to this morning is on that first phrase, The righteous man falleth down seven times, and riseth again. Three points for us to consider this morning. First of all, the description of a righteous man. Secondly, the declaration of a righteous man. And then thirdly, the determination of a righteous man. The first point we want to notice, we won't spend a lot of time here. We really want to focus on that second and third point. But let's talk a little bit about the description of a righteous man. The word righteous means justice or just, fair, equitable. Someone we might say who does right. You'll see this word frequently in Scripture, a righteous individual. But it also has a secondary meaning, and that is one who is right with God, one who is as he ought to be as he stands in the presence of God. And both of those things are worthy of our attention. We'll focus on the second one this morning. Insofar as a, a righteous man described, if you have your Bibles, look at 1 John. In this book, John describes a righteous individual, particularly 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and verse number 2. One of the things that's noteworthy about the ones John refers to as righteous is they are children of God. 
And with regards to being right and as we ought to be, that's how one gets to that state. You become a child of God. And so John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. John says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Verse number two, he says, now, beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. John says, children of God are righteous individuals. That's who he's talking about. Go a little further down in verse number 7, and John begins to describe the life, the description of this righteous individual. He says in verse number 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. We could pause there and talk about that uh, for a while, because when the Bible says, be not deceived or make sure no one deceives you, it means simply that, one, it's happening about whatever is being discussed, somebody's being deceived about it. Secondly, it can happen. And so John warns, as Paul does in other places, be not deceived. Let no one deceive you about what? Contextually, we're talking about righteousness. How could I be deceived about righteousness? John says, let no one deceive you. How can we distinguish and identify, describe a person as righteous? John says, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Well, who is the one who practices righteousness? We just read it in verse 1 and verse 2. They're children of God. Children of God practice righteousness. It's what they do. It's their manner of life, their mode of operation. It's how they live. John continues, though, in verse number 8, there is another group. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he is born of God. Notice verse number 10. He's used the word practice in both, both instances, both for those who are children of the devil and children of God. One practices righteousness, one practices sin. Verse number 10, John says, by this, by what? By the practice. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So insofar as the description of a righteous man, it's one who is a child of God and it's one who practices righteousness. John says, don't be deceived. If that's who you are, then don't be deceived and led to believe otherwise. Brings us to the second point, though, and that is the de declaration of a righteous man. Or we might ask it the way Job did in Job 9, verse 1 and verse 2, where Job says, I know it is so of a truth, but how shall man be just before God? In every sermon gospel preachers preach, there are two audiences that you have in mind. The first audience, and I don't know if it's in any particular order, it's just the two audiences. One is those who are saved. And that is you want to exhort you want to confirm and establish and build up and strengthen individuals who are already part of the Lord's family. That's a portion of the sermon. The second portion of the sermon is to those who are not children of God, because you want to invite, you want to plead, you want to educate in such a way as to move them to become children of God. And that's what these two points are about. Point number one, then, is how 
a person is declared righteous. If I am going to be made right in the sight of God, how is that going to be done? The first thing we would want to notice along those lines is how it can't be done. How can I not be declared righteous? Look, if you will, in Luke chapter 18. And with regards to this point, please understand this. It is the case that righteousness is not determined by our goodness. You cannot behave so good or so well in, in such a way that after looking at your wonderful behavior, you then declare yourself righteous. You can't do that. You can't behave so well. That's not how righteousness is determined. In Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9, beginning, Jesus gives this parable, and you'll notice in verse number 9 to whom the parable is given. The Bible says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And as you continue to read the parable down to verse number 14, two men went up to pray, one a tax collector, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector and a publican. The Pharisee, verse number 11, stood and prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I, I, I'm not a swindler or unjust. I'm not an adulterer or even like this tax collector. In fact, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And, and, I, and, and he, he goes on to describe himself in terms of his own righteousness. Jesus says with regards to the tax collector, he wouldn't so much as even lift up his head to heaven and he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that man went home justified. The other man did not. When it comes to being right in the sight of God, your goodness is not how that's determined. And it's necessary to sometimes remind God's own people of this because we meet people who, in our estimation, are so good. They're so close. Brothers and sisters, they're lost, and their own goodness can't fix the problem. Righteousness is not determined by our ability to keep the law perfectly. The law by itself could not make one right. It would simply point out sin. It couldn't fix it. And that is the nature of law. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. Sometimes people get into these discussions about somehow the old law lacking. It was perfect for what God designed it to do, and it did just that. But if it were just the law itself, then it is not sufficient to fix the problem of sin. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, those chapters cannot take away sin. What the law could do is point out sin. It could, it, it could make you aware that you were a sinner, and that's all it could do. Uh, if you and I drove down the, the highway and the speed limit said 55, and we went 56 or 7, we have broken the law. And... If you suddenly said, oops, I broke the law, let me go back to 53, well, that's fine. Because now if you drive at 53, you're no longer breaking the law, but you already have. And going 53 doesn't fix the problem that you went 57. And the law can't fix it because the sign only says 55, and that's all it'll ever say. And you've now broken the law. You, the law can't fix it. It just points out that you've broken it. Left to itself and alone, it can't fix the problem of sin. And so please don't approach God as if my perfect law keeping is going to make me right with God. It's not. Righteousness is not determined by men. 
a group of philosophers can't get together and figure out how to make you right. Human tradition can't make you right. We can't vote you right. Well, you come and join our assembly, and then we'll vote on you, and by our vote, you will be—that's not how you are made right. Councils and creed, these things don't make one right. How can I be made right by God? Righteousness is determined by God. God will have to declare you righteous. This is the issue with sin and why you need it in the first place. If you sin, you can't fix the problem. If you could imagine a gulf created by your sin, you can't bridge the gulf. You can't justify yourself. Sometimes you might hear people say, the criminal can't determine his punishment. You've broken the law, you don't get to tell the judge what'll happen next. The judge will decide that. You have broken God's law by sin, and now God will have to decide how you can be made right. You can't justify yourself. We can't reconcile ourselves. We can't make ourselves God's friends on our own. In fact, when Scripture begins to describe our state in sin, it uses expressions like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we were dead in sins and trespasses. We can't make ourselves alive again. It will say in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, that at that time we were without hope and without God in the world. We can't give ourselves hope. We can't fix the problem. The problem can only be fixed by God's decrees and declaration, and thank God He does. God declares us righteous, but how? If you have your Bibles, look in the book of Romans. This entire book is actually dedicated to that discussion. How is a person made right with God? And it is certainly worthy of a read. To that end, I would just encourage, if you're going to read a book of the Bible, just read the whole thing in one setting. It will help you with the continuity of thought. It will help you as you transition from chapter to chapter. It'll better help you understand the context because very often the chapter breaks don't create new thoughts. Very often the writer keeps his train of thought, wherein we have chapters, sometimes they're very helpful. Sometimes though, every time we read a chapter, we think we start a new thought and we lose sight of the previous thought. And really, the writer very often keeps the thought going for an extended period of time. And that's what's happening here. The Apostle Paul is discussing how people are made right with God, the Jew and the Gentile, and thus humanity. Just as Job asked, how is one made right with God? What the Apostle Paul is going to open this book by saying can be seen in chapter 1. After he talks about Jesus Christ being the seed of David, the Son of God, and declared that by the resurrection, he says in verse number 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Someone has very well said that the way books open and end really give us some idea as to what's between those points. And sure enough, verse, chapter 1 verse 5 says the obedience of faith in chapter 16 and verse 26, the last chapter uses the exact expression, the obedience of faith. What Paul is trying to move people to is this very concept, how to be made right with God. That way will be by God's grace through man's faith, and there is no other way. 
In Romans chapter 1, he says the Gentiles are under sin. In fact, he will use the expression, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. They cast off God, and God gave up on them. Well, in chapter 2, God's chosen people, the Jews, he will say, you're without excuse because you did the same things. And so, in the end, both Jew and Gentile are under sin. That brings us to chapter 3. And if you'll notice chapter 3 in verse number 9, Paul says, as he continues this discussion, what then are we, we, he means the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? He says, no, in no wise, in no way, for we've already proven both, all under sin. Well, if everybody is under sin, what's everybody need? Everybody needs a way to be made right with God. What is that way? Slide down, if you will, to about verse number 21 and begin reading with me there. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. No distinction between whom? No distinction between the Jew or the Gentile. There's no distinction. Everybody must be made right by faith. He says, for all have sinned, says it again, and come short of the glory of God. The all in 23 is the same all in verse 9. He says, being justified, how? As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith that was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, please note it, in Jesus. Therein lies the issue, and he'll continue that discussion in the chapter 4 with regards to faith. What shall we then say about Abraham? He uses Abraham and David, Old Testament figures, as examples of faith. Abraham in patriarchy, David under the law. Every person who has ever been saved under any period of time has been saved by grace through faith. There is no other way. Under the law, people could be made righteous if they had faith, not apart from faith. That's what Paul is saying. And so the Jews would ask, well, why then bother being a Jew? What advantage did we have? Go back to chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2. He says, chiefly in every way, you had every advantage, but namely, until you were given the oracles or the Word of God. Coincidentally, how does one come to have faith? Faith comes by hearing in this very book, hearing by the Word of God. What advantage did they have? Every advantage. He's not talking about simply the Word, but he says every—and they did. They had the priests. They had the prophets. They had the kings. They had Jerusalem. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. Literally, they had every advantage, but chief among them is you had the Word of God. You could come to faith, and that was your advantage among and above every other nation on the earth. In the chapter 4, he uses Abraham, he uses David, and he continues to talk about their faith. That's ultimately what, what justifies. And he says of Abraham that he had this faith in uncircumcision. That's significant because 
Abraham is credited with faith and thus righteousness. Notice chapter 4 and verse number 9. He says, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? Read that as Jew and Gentile. For we say, Abraham, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. There is the declaration piece, the crediting piece. God counts you as righteous. He credits you with righteousness. Now, how does he do that? By faith. How then, verse number 10, was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And Paul answers, not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Jews would keep arguing, we are God's people. And what would indicate that? The circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant. Well, how do they refer to Gentiles? uncircumcised. You're not part of the covenant. Again, see Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. What's Paul's point here? It's not circumcision that saved Abraham. That's his point. What did? Faith. And when did he get credited that faith and that righteousness? He actually says he got that in uncircumcision. You see, Abraham was a Gentile, and he was credited righteousness by faith. Genesis 15, 6 is where you'll read it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is before the circumcision, which comes in Genesis 17. The sign of the covenant circumcision comes after Abraham's already been credited with righteousness by faith. But keep reading. Paul ties it together, and he says in verse number 12, verse 11 and 12, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness may be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but those who follow after in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while being uncircumcised. It is the grace of God the mercy of God, the infinite goodness of God that made provisions for us to be made right with God once we get ourselves into sin. It's the grace of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through our obedience of faith to the gospel. After we do that, God credits us with righteousness. God declares us righteous. Paul's great lamentation is his Jewish brethren according to the flesh, which is how he describes them in Romans chapter 9 in the first three or four verses. He says they missed this. The sadness is the people who received the law missed the purpose of the law. Paul would say in Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster. Read that as the Jews' schoolmaster. Our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What then is the problem? The law did its part. It brought them to Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And as a result of that rejection, they can't be made righteous. Notice Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse number 30. Paul says there, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. 
but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And verse 33 ends, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. But what if you don't believe in him? Well, then you can't be made righteous. He continues that in Romans chapter 10. Remember, the thought just continues. And so he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved he says, for I bear them record. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What knowledge do they need? They need the gospel. What knowledge are they lacking? They won't accept Jesus. And so he continues by saying, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Hear it in verse number four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you reject Jesus Christ, you cannot be made right with God. There are other words we use to describe this individual and this new state that he is now in. We might also say this is a saved individual. A person who once was lost, not right with God, has now submitted to the obedience of faith and is now saved. We might also say he's justified. That's what Paul says in chapter 5 of this very book, being justified by faith. We might also say he's sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, but you were washed, justified, sanctified. We might say they've been born again. That's how Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 25, that you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. You've been reconciled, Paul would argue in Ephesians 2, and John would say you are now walking in the light all of those phrases to describe an individual who has gone from not being right with God, not being righteous, not being as he ought to be, and having submitted obedience to the gospel, now being saved and redeemed and justified and so on. It's what makes the question, what must I do to be saved, the greatest question that anybody can ever ask. There simply is nothing more important we might also ask it in a different way. We could just as well say, how can I be right with God? That's what Job said. The right answer leads to righteousness. That's what Paul is saying to the Jews. The right answer to that question leads one to be right with God. It leads that individual to salvation, to sonship, redemption, hope, ultimately leads them to heaven. But what if you get the wrong answer? The wrong answer will keep one in sin. It will keep one lost. It will make one hopeless and leave one without God, doomed, deceived, and ultimately lost eternally. I don't know of anything more important than asking this question and getting the right answer. It brings us to the third point, and that is the determination of a righteous man. Now, I suppose we need a series of sermons on how a person is saved because people are absolutely getting the wrong answer. And I'm not going to preach a series of sermons today, but it seems like I'd do you a disservice if I didn't spend two minutes at least talking about that subject. So let me say this. 
there is a series of material that I've written on the subject and trying to help both Christians and non-Christians, Christians understand how to help people and people who are not understand how to be helped. Let me offer you this. The issue is not as many people think it is. We go out and we try to have Bible studies with people. We invite them. We sit down at a table and usually we're talking to a person who believes. Here is a person very often who believes they're already saved. That's where the conversation begins. So you have one person saved and another person believing themselves to be saved, and they are now having a discussion about salvation. And so what usually happens is the person to whom we're speaking, we get into this conversation, and inevitably the conversation gets to the subject of baptism. The member of the Lord's body will show a person a series of passages on the subject of baptism and say, this is why you need to be baptized. They need to do that for the remission of sins, to which the response will often come back, I am saved and you don't have to be baptized. Not in order to be saved, I'm saved, and after being saved, I eventually got baptized. But I wasn't baptized in order to be saved, I was saved before I was baptized. All you got to do is believe. And so one person says, no, you got to be baptized. The other person says, all you got to do is believe. And then they both go to the Bible, open up the Bible, and they find passages that appear to, to say the exact same thing they're saying. Here's a passage that says, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth. And you say, they say, see, see, all you got to do is believe. And we will counter that with, no, 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 yeah, you got to believe, but you also have to be baptized. And you just backwards and forth. Has anybody ever had this discussion? Let me, let me suggest this to both groups. The issue is not baptism or belief. It's not. The issue is the one we're talking about this morning. The issue is faith. That's the issue. And if we are able to determine what that word means, these other two issues will be resolved. What Paul keeps saying in this book of Romans is faith. Obedience of faith. Says it in 1.5, says it in 16.26, and throughout the entire book, faith, 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 faith. The question is, what does that mean? Because if we could know that, then we would know what it takes to be made right with God. I said two minutes, sorry. Let me offer this. <laughs> if we stand here and we make the word faith mean what our family and friends, the people we love, here's what they have heard. They have been taught and they have heard that the word faith means you believe in God. God said something and you believe it. I believe Jesus Christ is God's son. I've accepted that fact and now I'm saved. That's what they've been taught. If when they use the word faith, that's what they're saying. If I stood over here, a member of the Lord's church would use the word faith and they would say, we would say, I would say, we would say that that word faith means, yes, you start right there. I believe God, and then I do whatever God said. That's what we would say. So when you sit down with somebody and y'all use the word faith, you're using the same word, but you're using it two different ways. And as the result of that, you keep spinning in a circle because you keep saying things that are true in Scripture. They are true. Do you have to believe? Absolutely. You have to believe. 
But do you have to do what God says? Absolutely, you have to do what God says. The problem is we're using the word faith for both things. The Bible doesn't mean both of these. It means one of them. And whichever one it means, that's the one that'll make you right with God. Now, here's the question. Which one does it mean? That would be the question. And we would have to dedicate, I suppose we just could. We won't, though. I had another sermon in mind to preach this morning, so I'm going to finish this one. <laughs> because what I wanted to talk to you about was these two sides. There are people who need to be made right with God, and if you're one of those people, please let's sit down and talk some more. I promise you, our concept of salvation is not rooted in we believe this water is special. We believe that we fix it and earn our way. That's not what we believe at all. And so we'd love to sit down and talk further with that. But that's one aspect. That person needs to be made right with God. What's the second aspect? The second aspect is the people who are, are right with God need to keep living faithfully even if they fall down. That is point number three, the determination of a righteous man. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man falleth seven times and riseth again. The implication of that is a righteous man can fall. Once you are counted righteous, it does not mean you can't fall. It doesn't mean that. In fact, David comes to mind, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I don't know of anyone who would argue that David wasn't a righteous man, and yet David fell. 2 Samuel 11, 27, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. And when you read Psalm 51, you hear David pleading for mercy and for, for cleansing and for washing and removing iniquity and cleansing him from sin. And he says, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. But it's that same David who pins the words that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or hold or count iniquity. David penned those words first in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And so David got back up. A righteous man, however, could fall again. Well, that's the implication. It's not simply that a righteous man can fall and get back up. The implication is if he falls, he repents, he's restored, but he could fall again after that. The verse actually says seven times. No reason to believe that the number is to be taken literally. It's a number of completion and perfection. It, it more likely is what Peter's asking when he's talking about forgiveness. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? No, until 70 times seven. Question, how many times will God forgive? That's the Lord's point. There's no limit to God's forgiveness. A righteous man could get back up, fall again, and fall again, and get back up and fall again. And as long as that individual is willing to repent and get back up and live faithfully, then God will have him back. Numbers 14, 22, God said Israel sinned against him 10 times. The book of Judges stands as an example of God's willingness to forgive 70 times 7. A few notes, though, about getting back up. There are consequences to sin. That doesn't mean you can't get back up. It means the seed sown will bear fruit. Being sorry or saying sorry may not be enough. I know sometimes people act like and they ask, well, he said he was sorry. Why doesn't that fix it? 
Well, that certainly is a good start point, and you need to be sorry after a godly sword, and you need to admit it, but that may not be that which fixes everything. For instance, David admitted sin when Nathan finally said to him, thou art the man. David said, I have sinned, but did that exclude consequences? No. If you read that passage again, you'll notice that when David responded to the man who took the ewe lamb, he said he should repay fourfold. He deserves death, but he should pay back fourfold. Well, that's right. But David said, you're the man. You know what that ultimately meant is, David, you're going to have to pay. He lost four sons as a result of that. The sword never left his house. He suffered. Did he get back up? Absolutely he did. But did that mean just because he acknowledged the sin that he didn't have consequences? It does not mean that. doesn't mean you can't get back up. It does mean, though, you may do so with loss. It means you may suffer after you get back up without anyone having to remind you of your past. You know, you take you everywhere you go, and the blessing of memory can sometimes feel like a curse. You may suffer the mental and emotional pain of remembering your past. David did. In Psalm 51.3, he says, my sin is ever before me. That's well after the forgiveness. Why is your sin still ever before you, David? I remember what I did. I remember what God gave to me. That's kind of what God says. Effectively, haven't I been good to you, David? I've given you this, given you this, given you this, and if you wanted more, I'd have given you that too. How does one feel when he's betrayed the goodness of God? David says, my sin is ever before me. Paul remembered what he did before he came to the Lord after being made right by the Lord. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17 is just one example. He says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor. But Paul, you're made right now. Why are you remembering that? Because he knows what he did. You might be the reason you suffer. Doesn't mean you can't get back up. It probably means, though, you can't get up without remembering what you've done. Now, that'll be on you. No doubt the young man who came to himself, went home and rejoiced with his father, you think he forgot the far country? You forgot the way, you think he forgot the way that pen, pen, pig's pen smelled? I imagine that was a stench that would have been hard to forget. Peter serves as a powerful example of the proverb. There are three events in Peter's life that demonstrate very plainly that a righteous person needs this level of determination. Get back up if you've fallen. Peter walked on water, Matthew 14, 30 to 33, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he became afraid and began to sink. Jesus asked him, why did you doubt? They got back to the boat, and everybody in the boat said, no doubt you are the Son of God. And you would think if you were walked on water, it's not something you do every day. If you saw the Savior walking on water, he invited you to walk on water. You walked on the water, and then you say, and he saved you. You would think, I'm good now. No, no. You just turn your page, because in Matthew 16, verse 15, down to verse 23, Peter makes the great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great. There's no way you can fall down from here. Yeah, you read down to verse 21, and the Bible will say Jesus began to tell them how he was going to Jerusalem, how he was going to suffer, and the Bible will actually say Peter took the Lord. Wait a minute. Took the Lord? Yeah. Peter took the Lord and rebuked him. Not after walking on water. 
Not after being saved by the Lord. Not after the Lord telling you and asking you, now why would you doubt? And you confess that he's the Christ, and Jesus say flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My father told you that. And you take the Lord aside and rebuke him. Well, surely now if you fix that, you wouldn't have, no, you just keep going because eventually you get to Matthew 26, and Peter will deny even knowing the Lord. Surely you can't fall so far as to deny you even know him. Peter did three times. And that last time the Bible says he swore and cursed. He wanted to make sure you know, I don't know this man. Don't be associated. Can you imagine? How do you get back from there? Peter got back up. We could talk about the fact that he failed, but it's better to talk about the fact that he got up. Peter, an apostle, fell, got back up, fell, got back up. Peter is the one who preached Acts chapter 2, at least in part, he did, with the other apostles. Peter also preached Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, stood before councils and proclaimed the very Jesus he denied. Peter preached Acts 10, the first Gentile convert. Peter preached that sermon. Peter preached Acts chapter 11 and defended the right of the Gentiles to have access to the gospel to those Jews who confronted him. Peter did that. And in Acts chapter 15, when more Jews were more disobedient and more against the Gentiles, it's Peter who stood up in Acts 15, 7 through 11 and said, no, I preached the gospel in Acts 2, I preached the gospel in Acts 10, and they will be saved even as we are. Peter did that. And after that meeting, Peter went to Galatia and fell because some of those same Jews came down. Now, before they came, he was eating with his Gentile brethren. But when they came, the Bible says Peter was afraid and fell, disassembled himself with his Gentile brethren for fear of the Jews. And then Peter got back up. Peter wrote 1 Peter. Peter wrote 2 Peter. And in that book, Peter tells us he served as an elder in the Lord's church. There are two groups that we're trying to reach this morning. One needs to be made right with God. And in order to be righteous, you must be counted righteous by God. You do that by obeying the gospel. That's what Paul says. You need the obedience of faith. God's grace sent Jesus to die for you and for the world. And it is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is the gospel, the good news. And Paul says in there is where you'll find God's righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he says. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Those who believe Jesus and obey the gospel, those who confess and are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, those people are made right by God. Now, if you've never done that, you need to. But what if you have? Once you are righteous, if you fall, get back up. What if you fall again? Get back up. The reason you are righteous is in part because your heart is right with God. And as a result of that, it's not a matter of trying to take advantage of his goodness. It is a matter of God's goodness providing the means and the opportunity for us to be made right. What if I'm fearful? Peter was. He fell. What if I'm weak? Peter was. And he fell. What if I'm thinking the wrong thing? Peter did. And he fell. But Peter kept getting back up. And that's what the proverb says. 
A righteous man falls seven times and he gets back up. The truth is, if you are a child of God, you are never without hope until you give up. The problem is not falling down. The problem is staying down. If you have never obeyed the gospel, when we use that expression, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 3, 23 to 25. Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, where we are putting the old man to death, burying him, and rising and walking in newness of life. If you've never done that, you need to. But if you have, if you've fallen down, come home. Luke 15 is in our Bibles so that any of God's children that's gone away can know that the light is always home on and our Father is ever waiting for your return. Please have the courage and the strength to be like Peter and get up one more time. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand. And